Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Steve Macias and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. You are listening to episode number 82 of the Out of the Question podcast. Today's question arose out of the fact that I recently was at the swearing-in ceremony of my son-in-law, who became a U.S. citizen during Thanksgiving week of this year. Listening to the oath that was taken by approximately 800 people that day got me thinking about what does it mean when the Bible says in Philippians 3.20 that our citizenship is in heaven? Greetings, Steve. Greetings and salutations. As usual, I'll let you take the first step at this, exploring the question behind the question. I think the question is, where is our citizenship, or what does it mean that our citizenship is in heaven? And then the question behind that is, does our citizenship being in heaven mean that the things of this world, or our citizenship, say, as an American, are less important? And I think that's what the question we're going to get into today is, what does it mean that our citizenship is in heaven? So when we're talking about a citizen, I mean, the word comes from the Latin civitas, and it means a member of a city or polis. The word citizen then actually refers to one's legal position and allegiance in a country or place. So we're citizens of heaven. What's our legal position? And where should our allegiance or how should our allegiance be manifested? Those are the exact right questions. I think to understand this, you have to understand what St. Paul is saying. So, of course, St. Paul is a Roman citizen, but no one would doubt that St. Paul's allegiance was wholly to the kingdom of God. There's no other apostle who is more fervently anti-imperial. This is the guy who's going to overthrow all of Rome, and Rome's going to beat him and strip him nude the entire time he's working to overthrow Rome. But what does it mean to be a citizen meant something different for Paul than it does for us today. And a lot of that context can be given just by understanding where this verse is and where this verse is addressed to. So the city of Philippi is a vassal city of the Roman Empire. Now, The people who lived in Philippi were part of the Macedonian Empire, and then they were conquered by the Romans. But they were now given Roman citizenship as part of the empire. So the people of Philippi were citizens of a different city. They weren't claiming citizenship of Macedonia. They were claiming citizenship of an entirely different city across the sea in the little city called Rome. And what it meant for them to be a citizen of Rome meant that if somebody, maybe some of the the bordering folks who wanted to attack Rome or some of the pagan tribes, it meant that they could call on their citizenship and the emperor in Rome would come be their savior and protect them from outside forces. So for St. Paul, he's almost using a pun here that I... I'm a citizen of heaven is kind of turning that idea of Roman citizenship on its head. Are we depending on Rome to come and save us, or are we depending upon heaven to come and save us? 
So Paul didn't think it was mutually exclusive that he had to be a citizen of heaven and renounce his Roman citizenship. He was acting out the idea that both were appropriate. That's right. And Paul is actually very proud of his Roman citizenship. Uh, It's not clear exactly how Paul got his citizenship. Some people postulate that perhaps his father served in the military or his grandfather served in the military. But some way or another, Paul achieves Roman citizenship and he's very intentional about claiming that Roman citizenship. Throughout his travels, first and second missionary journeys, St. Paul uses the Roman citizenship to his advantage. And it fits very nicely with St. Paul's theology in the book of Romans. St. Paul really believes that anybody who's in governmental authority is a minister of God, because he believes that all of the kingdoms of this world are being presently overcome by the king in heaven. And so for St. Paul, of course, he's a citizen of Rome. And of course, he's going to use that to his advantage because everybody, including Rome and the, the fake God emperor, is coming under the one true king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you see throughout uh, St. Paul's missionary journeys, him appealing to his citizenship and the rights thereof because he acknowledges that the only reason that person's in authority is because God allows them to be. So tell me if you think this is a stretch. I witnessed a swearing-in ceremony of people who were not born in our country, and they had to take an oath of allegiance. Is it a stretch to say that our baptism is a mark of our citizenship, in which case that's why we have baptismal vows? I would certainly say it's a, it's a mark of our identity with citizenship in heaven. Now, just like the verse where uh, Jesus says his kingdom is not of this world, the same thing is our citizenship is not of this world. That doesn't mean that Christ's kingdom doesn't come into this world. It means that it does not derive its original authority from anything here on earth. And so the baptism does the exact same thing. Baptism is the sovereign work of God claiming a elect people for himself. This is how God has always worked from the very beginning. He creates Adam and Eve. That's his elect people from the very beginning. They get their authority to be regents over the garden from above. Their citizenship came from heaven down to earth. And now they get to subdue the garden and then subdue the wilderness based on the authority of heaven, of God and his almighty hand delegated down. And so they go around and saying, I, by the authority of the almighty, say, this animal is now cattle. And so it goes throughout the entire Old Testament that way. Uh, The Jews, God's chosen people, are given a promise and a land, and they're marked as citizens of that land by the cutting of their foreskin. Uh, That's how you circumscribed the people of Israel. You said these are the covenant people. They have made an oath in their body, again, something in this world, But the authority of that oath doesn't come from the cutting of the foreskin. The authority of the oath comes from the kingdom that makes the promises, the citizenship in heaven. So an interesting point there, and obviously we will subscribe to the idea that baptism is the New Testament rite of circumcision in terms of the Old Testament. But in the Old Testament, we would never have said that women and children were not part of the covenant because they themselves were not circumcised. 
So isn't it interesting that people, well, some people have such an aversion to the idea of the baptizing of infants? It is interesting that people have an aversion to uh, the baptism of infants, but it really goes along with this other idea of citizenship. So for Paul to prove he was a citizen, he actually had to carry something around called a diploma. Uh, and this spelled just like the diploma you would get when you graduate high school was a, a document that you would hang around your neck or you would carry with you. And so you can see this come to light when St. Paul's stripped naked and then they discover, oh, wait, he's a Roman citizen <laughs> because he uh, has this certificate of citizenship with him. The same thing is true of circumcision. It was a, a mark of indelible identity that you were of the people of God. And then in the New Testament, it's a mark of indelible authority that you are the covenant people of God. Now, what's, what's a significant difference between the Old and the New Testament is whereas the Old Testament was a shadow in the sign of circumcision, uh, a shadow given to an elect people, the Israelites, a shadow given to husbands, a shadow given to this covenant people, now becomes fully seen in the light of day, fully elaborated, fully evolved, fully, you know, coming out of its place. And so it spreads to men, women, and children. All the promises that were made in Abraham and held on to until the fullness of time have now come to pass in the incarnation of Christ. After Christ, there is no more shadow. It's all real. And so the citizenship of heaven means heaven is currently coming down into earth and is transforming not only uh, this world, but is giving the authority of heaven to this world. So when Jesus, right before his ascension, issued the Great Commission, he, you could say he was saying, go out, make disciples, and make them citizens of the kingdom of heaven. That's exactly what he's saying. He doesn't say, go out, people, and share the good news. He specifically mentions the nations. So to be a citizen of the kingdom of God is to recognize that there's kind of this layer of citizenship. There's your primary allegiance. Uh, it says in the book of Proverbs, son, give me your heart. Your primary allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And so your, your citizenship is there first. But that doesn't limit where your spheres of influence are. Rather, it does the opposite. It gives you the source of your power and authority. And just like you mentioned in the Ascension account, he doesn't say, go and beg the Roman emperors for favor. He says, all authority in heaven and in earth has been given to me, therefore. So the stage of Jesus is, all the nations now belong to me, therefore, go tell the nations <laughs> that your citizenship Go plead with them. Show them your diploma of the Lord Jesus and say, guess what? The emperor is here. And the good news is he's welcoming you to come into his kingdom. Just as Rome would travel from country to country and conquer, they brought the good news that the roads, that the mail system, that the protection of the emperor was coming with them. That's what it means to be a citizen of heaven is that the things of this world are becoming the things of heaven. And along with citizenship comes privileges, duties, and responsibilities. And I think one of the major disconnects that happens today is when people are told by their own affirmation 
they become citizens of the kingdom of God. Well, we have all sorts of talk today about illegal immigration and saying, wait a second, you can't just scale the wall or you can't just go through the border and then claim yourself that you're a citizen because citizenship means something. Yet if you take that into the, I say, prevailing opinion that if you ask Jesus into your heart, therefore you are a citizen of the kingdom, it sort of makes it something that is less than significant when you consider what it takes to become a citizen, let's say, of the United States. Right. Or it reduces it down to a personal relationship or, or a personal decision. And of course, that aspect is there. Christ is a personal God. He speaks to us individually. But there is another aspect of your salvation that is citizen-related, just like your uh, son-in-law took an oath to the Constitution or whatever they do. He took an oath, um, and now he is bound by blessings, right? He can vote, he can participate in juries, he can get a driver's license, all the civic identity things that are blessings in our culture. But now he's also subject to uh, citizenship sanctions, what the Bible would say, the consequences of breaking the laws. So he has he now obligated to pay his taxes. <laughs> he's obligated to show up for that jury that he has the privilege to do. He's now obligated to carry his ID card with him everywhere. Those things, which we don't always agree with, but are now under the oath he took, his obligations. But I think most Christians take their oath to the state more seriously than they took their oath to the Lord Jesus. Just for clarification, people who are not citizens of the United States still pay taxes. They <laughs> often have a driver's license and carry around IDs. But there's a certain protection that comes with being a citizen. So, for example, if I'm traveling to a foreign country and something happens, I have the recourse to go to the embassy and say I'm a citizen. And so the U.S. embassy is supposed to help me. So there are plenty of people who are in our country who aren't citizens, but why would so many people want to become citizens if it really didn't mean anything? Right. And the issue with being a, a citizen of, the he of heaven or a citizen of the kingdom, we've reduced it down to being just a decision, not realizing that when Jesus made his, <laughs> made his statement, let your yes be yes, your no be no, it was in the same vein of thinking that not all who say, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not enough to sometimes say, Lord, I'm a citizen, but rather that all of our life and actions have to be oriented around this citizenship. It's a great power, but it's also now a great authority over your head that carries the sanctions of death and life. And of course, I always go back to the idea of the confusion that happens with children when they don't view themselves as citizens of the kingdom because their church orientation or their parents say, no, you can't be baptized until you make the decision. What was really interesting at the swearing-in ceremony is that people's children were also being sworn in as citizens. So there were people who were holding their toddlers or their infants, and they were, the children were being sworn in. So I don't see why it's so hard for people to get it in terms of our citizenship as part of the saints of God, when we seem to understand it very well in terms of being a citizen of our nation, of our state, and of our county. Right. Well, and the reality is, 
we we do have a sense of identity as individuals, right? There's there's a part of you that's an individual. But in scriptural terms, the smallest organizational unit is not the individual. It is the family. And so husband and wife, their children, uh, this is the smallest organizational unit because it's the smallest institution God made. God did not make man to be autonomous or an individual. God made the family. And so just as we see in Adam and Eve, the wholeness of the individual is found in marriage. The wholeness of our identity is found in the family. So there is a natural consequence of this thinking that's covenantal, that citizenship or identity as a covenant child, all of the institutions flow from the cohesion of the family. Now, there's natural benefits to that. The family will protect the child. The family will uh, be the best environment for the child to be raised in. The family will nurture the child. But it's also the pattern that God established as the standard. And so what modern culture attempts to do by emphasizing the individual, whether it's in the sacraments of baptism or in the individual rights in extreme libertarianism, is there attacks on the family. And we've lived in a Lockean or post-Enlightenment reasoning, thinking, individual world for so long, we've forgotten that the Bible doesn't speak of individuals. The promises, according to St. Peter, there at the day of Pentecost, are to you, not you as an individual, you and your family, you and your children. St. Paul could have never imagined a father coming to Christ and not bringing his children into the covenant because a father and his family were one unit. They were indivisible because the family is indivisible. That's why divorce is an, uh, is an abomination to the Lord. That's why it's good for men to come together because the family is one. There's nothing less than one. Right. And you think about it, since the Bible makes it very clear that we are all responsible to obey God's law, whether or not we profess belief, that all of us have the law, have knowledge of the law, and some of us who have been redeemed by means of the Holy Spirit are no longer kicking against the goads, and others still remain and do so. So in a very real sense, everybody who has been born is a citizen of God's creation, and the laws of his domain apply to them. And if they disobey them, then the curses that go along with disobedience befall them. And so we have, you might say, a number of different citizenships, but of course, the most important citizenship we have is that of being a citizen of the kingdom. That's right. And you're going to have a lot of citizenships or allegiances or associations that you're called to bring the Lord into. Your citizenship as the kingdom of heaven will work its way down into the citizenship of the bowling league or the citizenship of uh, the men's uh, soccer team or ladies tea association or whatever organization you get sent into. You're called to be speaking there with the authority of the citizenship that's at the top. That is the uh, citizenship of the kingdom of heaven. And so citizenship has an awful lot to do with allegiance. And I dare say it's an area where people really need to reflect because we're called in many circumstances to pledge our allegiance. 
And yet, if we pledge our allegiance to an entity that is contrary to the kingdom of God and don't use our allegiance to Christ to infiltrate and bring about a correct posture within relationship to God, then we're hard-pressed to not call ourselves traitors. That's right. I mean, there are a number of institutions that require allegiances that are more formal. One comes to mind would be like the Masonic Lodges, uh, the Freemasons. And, you know, they have you go through an entire initiation, you do your membership, all that kind of stuff. And most of the United States presidents have been members of of the Freemasons. But I would think that would be an example where we should not allow our association or our citizenship to be confused with competing interests. At the same time, I think it's significantly different than you know, St. Paul claiming his Roman citizenship. We always have to know that our major concern is to seek first the kingdom of God, and then everything else falls in place. And besides food, clothing, and shelter, which are those things that Jesus said will be taken care of, we do have other concerns other than food, clothing, and shelter. But the call is that our allegiance is to the kingdom of God. And then when that's in place, other things fall into place. Yes. What I think is the most dangerous reading of this, or probably just the most annoying reading of this particular idea of citizenship in heaven, is when people read citizenship in heaven to mean that our cares are not for this life, but for the next. Right? So some people will say, well, I'm a citizen of heaven, which means that when I die, I will leave this world and become a citizen of heaven. And I don't think that anybody can look at the life of St. Paul and think that's what he was thinking. He wasn't thinking, it doesn't really matter what we do in this world because the next life is what really matters. That's looking at the scripture completely backwards. But I would wager that if you picked up any major writer that's sold in Lifeway today, they're going to tell you that citizenship in heaven means that we are concerned not with the cares of this world, but rather the cares of heaven. But that is not the scriptural identity. Citizenship in heaven has nothing to do with where you go when you die. And I think it's important not to equate patriotism with citizenship either, because they don't always go together. I can be a righteous citizen of my country and just like in very real aspects. It's like it's very hard for me to talk about how great America is when I know that millions of unborn children have been murdered legally and are continuing to be murdered. It's very hard to say, this is my country and I'm proud of it. But it doesn't ameliorate my responsibility as a citizen of my country to speak God's truth. So I don't say my country right or wrong. I say my allegiance is to the King of Kings and he's put me here. So I have to be a citizen Christian. I have to be someone who no matter what areas I travel in, that I bring the crown rights of Jesus Christ with me. Right. Well, and that's really the irony of St. Paul claiming his Roman citizenship, right? Because during the second missionary journey of St. Paul, who is the emperor? Nero, right? So the idea that St. Paul would say, I'm a Roman, 
and claim his Roman citizenship at the time when Rome is literally killing Christians is not really what we would think to do as far as being a citizen. But there's got to be a little bit of you know, tongue-in-cheek when St. Paul is calling upon the emperor to hear his case, knowing full well that the emperor is in other parts of the empire killing Christians. And yet St. Paul is a good example for us because he could see injustice upon his own people and upon other people, and yet he knew what Rome was to become. He knew what Rome should be. He knew that the Pax Romana or the peace of Rome that they had all envisioned uh, wasn't a reality and that it could be something more if they really came under the Pax Christiana, right, of the peace of Christ. But if you were to take that to today's circumstances, it's easy for us to look at United States Supreme Court or United States president or state legislators and see that they're unjust towards Christians. But none of them are quite Nero. Uh, None of them are as pagan as Nero. In fact, most of them would claim in some sense to be under the authority of Christ, to take the name Christian. And yet we are not bold enough to trust that our sovereign God has those people as ministers of his righteousness to execute wrath on evildoers and to protect those who do good, that we are withdrawing from our call to be citizens of this country or citizens of this state. And we are abdicating the call that God has of authority over this country. St. Paul would not have done that. St. Paul would have taken, starting at the very lowly level with the jailer, down to the county court, up to the states, to the emperor himself, and said, this is what's right, because God said so. Therefore, you as minister of God do this. Um, And yet in our country, so different than Rome, we don't have the same patriotism, the same citizenship mentality that St. Paul has. So we're coming to the end of our time. I would recommend that for those people who have read Rushduni's Institutes, Volume 1, a great next step to that is his second volume, Law and Society, because you'll find throughout those essays that he's never giving a call for retreat. No, I can't be concerned with this world because my citizenship is in heaven. It's more like I'm thoroughly concerned with this world because my citizenship is in heaven and God has placed me where he's placed me. So there's no getting around the fact that we all have been placed somewhere. And instead of being apologetic um, in the sense of I feel bad that I have privilege and other people don't, and therefore I have to give up my privilege, as Christians we should recognize our privilege and use it for the glory of God. And again, you have to go back to the context of the Bible. Imagine if somebody in Philippi said, my citizenship is in Rome, therefore when I die, I'm going to Rome. That's never what they thought. Instead, they said, I'm in Philippi. If you come into my territory, Rome and the emperor and all of his armies are going to come and defend and uphold me. That's how the Christian should be acting. We don't despair where we are because everything we do is girded up. The scaffolding and the watchtower are built by God. And when people come in to steal and destroy, we call upon the citizenship we have in heaven. And the Lord 
comes and upholds us. The promise is wherever our feet trod, that's ours, and we should take it that way. We shouldn't ever say, well, I have to obey the state if it goes against the, the Bible, because what else am I supposed to do? It's we have to reiterate what the apostles said, we obey God rather than man. But they weren't trying to get a ticket out of there. What they were trying to do was bring about the revolution that Jesus said in making disciples of all nations. Amen. My friend, thank you. Good discussion as always. Listeners, send us an email at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll talk with you all next time. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.